0: Well, we have the opportunity tonight to dig into God's Word and to continue our series entitled Defending Your Faith. And I want you tonight to be encouraged. I want you to understand some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And I want you to know how gracious God has been to you by granting you faith and repentance and by bringing you to an intimate knowledge of himself and to know that there are so many people in bondage, not just to Roman Catholicism, but to so many other religions. that I want you to be encouraged tonight as we go through these things so that you know what, even if you're not a former Roman Catholic, what you've been delivered from. And I want us to rejoice in that tonight. As we begin tonight to discuss the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, We want to make it clear to all of you that Roman Catholicism has not classically been considered a cult. You know, in this series, Defending Your Faith, we spent the first eight messages talking about what we believe, sort of taking the offensive weapons that we have in our truth, the truth of the Word of God, and saying this is what Christianity is, this is what Christianity believes, And then we turned the corner and, as it were, took a more defensive posture and said this is how we would defend our faith against those who would attack us. And we have been going through a number of cults. And last time we began discussing the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to endeavor to say that Roman Catholicism classically has not been considered a cult like the others that we have been discussing. From what we said last time about the Roman Catholic teaching on justification and what they teach and what they believe about those things, tonight I want you to know about Rome in some other elements in the core of what they teach. And when I talk about these things, I'm not necessarily referring to Rome as a cult. You say, well, what is it? Well, it would be what I think could be called the classic error of false addition to Christianity as over against the cults who might what uh, who might do what we say would subtract from the doctrines of christianity roman catholicism adds to christianity some extraneous things which makes it what i would call a false religion but not a cult a cult Subtracts from Christianity. It takes away some of the great doctrines of Christian truth. But what Rome has done is that they have taken, they have added as mandatory for the Christian what the cults have taken away. And if that helps you, it certainly helps me try to understand what Rome believes. Because, of course, the Roman Catholic Church itself, as a system, believes a lot of things that are very, very similar to Christianity. For instance, The Roman Catholic Church defends the doctrine of the Trinity. They defend historically what the Church has taught regarding many other things that the cults deny. And so often, Roman Catholicism is sort of uh, a system of religion that does not classically define itself by what it takes away, but by what it adds. Cults are usually labeled as such because they tend to deny deny very, very cardinal doctrines of truth. But properly speaking, rather than being called a cult per se, Roman Catholicism is a false religion because they say there are certain teachings which they hold that you must add to your Christian life if you are to be accepted by God. One of the best ways to see this false addition to Christianity is to investigate the so-called seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. What, is it, what it is that they say a man or a woman must do in order to be right with God, or at the very least, what a man or a woman must do in order to properly live the Christian life. In other words, what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about the seven sacraments hits right at the very core of what Rome and its church is all about. In other words, what we're going to talk about tonight hits at the very core of what Roman Catholicism teaches and believes in the regular practice of its religion. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. you remember last time we talked about justification? We talked about what Rome believes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight, but we're mainly going to see it as lived out in the seven sacraments of the church. And this is why I've chosen to present the seven sacraments and to define them and then to see if the Bible teaches them because it makes up such a core of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I think maybe first of all, the most important thing we ought to do before going into the seven sacraments of the church is to define what a sacrament is. Because frankly, in our own church, the Protestant church, as over against Rome, we also have sacraments. Now, we don't always call them sacraments, mainly because sacramentalism, per se, is what Rome teaches and believes. And often, we want to distance ourselves from a lot of what they teach. And so, Protestantism has tended to shy away from using the term sacrament. We have much more commonly referred to baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances. And that's okay. It's certainly not wrong to call them ordinances, but it's also not wrong, classically speaking, to call uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper sacraments of the church if you define what a sacrament really means from a biblical perspective. Well, what does Rome believe? What do they say a sacrament is? And if you have a pen and a piece of paper, I think it would be good for you to write these things down so that if you are to dialogue with someone in the Roman Catholic Church, you are able to represent them accurately. You say, well, wait a minute, that sounds a little bit backwards. Why would I need to know what Rome believes if I'm talking with a Roman Catholic? Won't they tell me? Well, often, as you might be aware Even if you had a background yourself in Roman Catholicism, often Rome, a person who's a part of the Catholic Church, doesn't really understand what they believe. Often they have a very misconstrued idea of what they themselves teach as a religion, as a church, as a doctrine. And so this is good to show them often what they believe. Often their response has been when you tell them truly what the church believes and you're able to show them from their very own documents, many of them are quite shocked. They're quite surprised as to what their own church believes. Many are not, of course, but some of them are. All right, let's define what a sacrament is. A sacrament, according to the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, and you remember I said that the Council of Trent was a reactionary council against the Reformers. All the way back 500 plus years ago, the Council of Trent was designed to react Against what the Reformers believed about the church, believed about the Word, believed about salvation. And they formulated a series of doctrines as a refutation against the Reformers and they called it the Council of Trent. And here's what Trent says. It's always been the teaching of the church. It was formalized then and it has been reaffirmed many, many times, especially in the new catechism of the Catholic Church which was published in 1995. Here's what they say a sacrament is. The Council of Trent says that it is, quote, an effective sign of grace instituted by Christ. Unquote. An effective sign of grace instituted by Christ. In fact, if you were to look at the brand new Catholic Catechism or Catechism of the Catholic Church as it's most properly known, edited by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, it says, quote, the whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. So you can see how important these sacraments are to the church. He says the whole liturgical life of the church revolves around the Eucharistic sacrifice and the sacraments. It goes on to say this catechism, and this of course would be that body of work, that document, that book, that young Catholics are being led to believe. It's a catechism like we would catechize our children so do Roman Catholics catechize their children. And this is the book that they use. It says, Jesus' words and actions during His hidden life and public ministry were already salvific. That means already in the plan of salvation. They announced and prepared what He was going to give the church when all was accomplished. The mysteries of Christ's life are the foundations of what He would henceforth dispense in the sacraments. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it concludes like this. And this is probably one of the clearest ways it can be stated. Again, in the Catholic Catechism, quote, Celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They are efficacious because in them Christ Himself is at work. It is He who baptizes. Baptizes He who acts in His sacraments in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. Unquote. Page 292. What do they mean? Well, this is what they mean in very practical, down-to-earth terms. The sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, and there are seven of them, they not only signify what it is each one of them is defined as being, but it also provides the grace the efficacious grace from God that gives you what you need which is necessary for salvation. That's what they teach. That's what they believe. That you must partake of the sacraments of the church in order for God's grace to be operative in your life. In other words, you desperately need these sacraments in order for you ultimately to to be justified in God's sight. That's what they believe. In other words, as we talked about it last week, the monumental difference, the fundamental difference between Rome and Protestantism is this. We believe in what we could call punctiliar justification. You say, what does that mean? Well, you know what punctiliar means. That means that God justifies us at a point in time. If someone were to talk about the punctiliar nature of something, he's talking about something at a point in time. It's not a process. It's not on a continuum. It's it's not a progressive idea. It's something that happens at a moment in time. And Protestants believe that Christians are made Christians when they are declared righteous by God at a moment in time, at a point It's punctiliar. It happens as a declarative act by God at one moment. It is not progressive. That's why it is absolutely incorrect as Protestants to say that our justification, God declaring us just or righteous in His sight, is progressive in any sense. It is not progressive at all. Justification is what God declares about a sinner at a moment in time. He declares him not guilty. You say, well, what is the basis of that? The basis of that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross through no meritorious works on our part of any kind whatsoever. It is excluded. And therefore, Rome and Protestants disagree with each other fundamentally, right at the core, right at the outset. Because we believe salvation is a point, not a process. And Rome disagrees. Rome believes in what we could call progressive justification. That is, they believe that it has a starting point, yes, for sure, but that that justification continues on a continuum or a line or a progressive kind of sense until ultimately someone is declared righteous by God, but it is both... By the righteousness of Christ and what He did on the cross, but also based on the notorious works of what a believer does, or a person does, or a sinner does. It's a process. It's a progressive issue. Now, we say, as Protestants, we believe that our sanctification is progressive. We believe that it's not a point, but a process. In other words, we are progressively being made like Jesus Christ. We are being progressively conformed to His image. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 8.28 and following teaches that. But our justification is a point, not a process. Our sanctification, a process, not a point. Rome virtually has those two doctrines as synonymous They could call both their justification and their sanctification progressive. A process of time. It's all on a timeline. It's all on a continuum. It's not punctilium. And what they would further say is that the way God confers His justification of you is what you do along with Christ's work on the cross, but it's what you do in these seven sacraments. That's how important they are. That's why it is at the core of what Rome believes. Now you say, well, how can they teach that when you're talking about these sacraments being what they are, and sometimes they're just physical elements, like the mass, like the bread and the wine. How could they say that something physical Uh, Something literal has some sort of saving efficacy. Well, here's what they believe. They believe that that a sacrament has three elements to it. The first element is what they call matter, which is the physical substance itself, like the bread and the cup. Now, they say, of course, that for something like penance or the sacrament of marriage, because that's not necessarily physical in nature, like a bread and a cup that you can touch with your hand, That you still have matter in that you can sense a marriage. You can sense your penance. So it's a part of your senses, so it also obviously is a part of matter. And then secondly, they say that a sacrament must also have form. Not just the physical realities attached to it or your senses, the human senses, but also form. And what that means normally is the words that a priest would use to administer the sacrament. It has a form. It has a shape to it. And this is the way it's to be done. And they don't believe that it can ever be altered. It is unchanging. The words that are used will always be the words that are used because that gives form to the very sacraments themselves. And since the church is irreformable, then the form stays the same. And then thirdly, they believe you must have the right intention. That means the actions of a faithful minister or faithful priest. In other words, there can be no one who is involved in these sacraments apart from the church. You can't necessarily be involved in these things apart from the regular practice or rites, R-I-T-E-S, of the church. And therefore, since the officials, the priests of the church, are the officials, then it therefore must go through them. Alright, that's a sacrament. That's the way they define it. That's what they teach. It's a it's a right. It's a, an ordinance. It's a way to be accepted by God. And it has to have form. And it has to have matter. And it has to have the right intentions of those who are performing such signs. Such signification. Now remember, what I said was it wasn't just the sign itself. It's not just the physical presence, say in the Mass for instance. But it's also the idea that there is a saving spiritual efficacy. Efficacy meaning simply the idea that it has an actual spiritual reality to it. Something is happening inside of you, spiritually speaking. It's not just the sign on the outside, it's what's happening on the inside. It's what God is doing in you. Now, it's not what God is declaring about you. That's our view of justification. It's what God is doing in you through these sacraments. What are they? Number one. Number one, the sacrament of baptism. Now, if you're a former Roman Catholic, you know how important this sacrament is. It's number one in their list. And here's what they teach. They teach that baptism is the first sacrament and when partaken, it cleanses one of original sin. That's what they believe. That's what Rome actually teaches. That it cleanses you as an infant because they believe that to partake of baptism in the Roman Catholic system is to partake of baptism as an infant. Now, obviously, someone could convert to Roman Catholicism as an adult, but they then would be sprinkled, and that's the way they do it. That's the mode. And if they were to be sprinkled, then at that very moment, because of the act of baptism, because of the signifying act of baptism, a person's original sin vanishes away. And when a person comes to the age of reason, they say, then it also allows them to be cleansed from particular sins. So both ways they have it. As an infant, you're baptized and your original sin is taken care of. That means your sin in Adam. Your fallenness. Your fallen nature. Your sinful disposition. And when you come to the age of reason... That is the age that you can reason, you can think, you can ponder, you can meditate. Then at that particular point, the baptism that you underwent as a a child also kicks in the very particular sins that you commit. So whether they are your own uh, sinful nature and condition, the sins are forgiven, or your own particular sins, they are also forgiven. But you must be baptized in order for this to occur. They believe that when a person is baptized, they're incorporated into the body of Christ, into the church. You become a member of the church, the visible body of Christ. And of course, for them, that means the Catholic church. For them, there really isn't another church. That's the mother church. That's the Catholic church. Catholic meaning universal. And if you were to receive other aspects of the Christian life, it must be through baptism. Faith and hope and love and other virtues that you receive as a Catholic Christian are received first through the entrance of baptism. It all starts there. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church teaches very, very clearly that the process of your justification, your being made righteous in God's sight, starts at baptism. You say, well, how can they teach that? I mean, how can somebody teach as a little infant who might be eight days old, eight weeks old? How could a person be sprinkled with H2O and that have some sort of saving value? Incorporating that little infant into the church, incorporating that little infant into the body of Christ, making that person at least at the outset a redeemable person. How can all of that be? That's what they teach. They say, for instance, page 319 of the Catholic Catechism, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. All of them. Especially the most important one, and that is baptism at the outset. Now remember what I said about the efficacy of the sacraments. With baptism, Roman Catholicism believes that it not only represents the cleansing of the soul from sin, but it brings about the cleansing itself in the doing of the sacrament. In other words, because it has efficacy, because it has spiritual value, the very moment you are baptized and by virtue of the baptism, your sins are washed away. That's an amazing thing they teach. A little infant then has the assurance... At least in part, or initially, that by the very act, and of course the parents of Roman Catholics, uh, of, of Roman Catholic infants, certainly want that baptism to be undergone. Why? Because if you would want them to be on the right road, the right path, the first step is baptism. And so, every Roman Catholic has their infant baptized. That's just what they do, that's a part of what they are. Catechism of the Catholic Church says it this way. Quote, baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte, that is a, a, an infant, obviously, a new creature, an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and co-heir with him and temple of the Holy Spirit. Page 292. That's some amazing statements about that little infant and about what they've received. If you're baptized, you will receive efficacious grace in order ultimately for God to declare you righteous in His sight. Now, you may be asking the question, what is the biblical basis for such a thing? Where where did they come up with this? I've read my Bible many times and I've never seen this. How can this be true? Well, one of the things that you have to understand is that the Roman Catholic Church bases its teachings not only on the revelation of Scripture, but also as they interpret that revelation, that is, that anything that needs to be further understood, further clarified, even supplanting Scripture, going beyond Scripture, then Rome, by virtue of itself as the church, the interpreter of truth, adds to Scripture. Scripture. It's exactly what they do. I'm not misrepresenting Rome at all. They believe that there is a revelation from God, and it is contained not only, of course, in the 66 books of our Old and New Testaments, but the Apocrypha as well, and by what they call the Magisterium of the Church. Sometimes you might hear a Roman Catholic person, or you might read a document, or hear someone speaking on the television, and they say, The Pope is speaking ex cathedra. What does that mean? X is the Greek word, or from its Latin word, out of, out of, and cathedral means chair. Uh, the Pope is speaking from or out of the chair. In other words, since he, as they believe, is the vicar of Christ, the representative of Jesus Christ, the one representative of Christ in the world, that when he speaks from the chair or out of the chair, that is as authoritative as Scripture itself. And that, is where they principally come up with most of what they believe on the sacraments. Surely, baptism is mentioned in the New Testament. We're going to take a look at a couple of passages here to see if Rome is teaching the truth. And you won't find what they teach in these passages. But what their answer is, is that the church, the magisterium, the ex-cathedra pronouncements of the Pope, papal encyclicals, papal bulls, papal pronouncements, clarify, help undergird, and even some cases add to the scriptural revelation. And that's what they believe. John Armstrong states it well when he says this, the church appeals to scripture in the definition of each of the seven sacraments, but the church's historically evolving understanding of each came to fruition in a past council or a papal decision that ultimately defined what the Catholic understanding of a particular sacrament is. In other words, it is believed that the seed for the practice is in Scripture, but the flower comes to bloom, as it were, through the work of the teaching authority of the magisterium. In other words, they don't deny, and we don't deny, that some of these things that they teach might have in their seed form a basis from some passages of Scripture. But they then take that beyond the Scripture and in a sort of full-blooming kind of way, the magisterium, the teaching of the church, takes it from its seed form in Scripture and expands on that so that the full bloom of this doctrine can come to the fore. And so with all of these sacraments as we go through them, you'll see why they say there's a biblical basis for this, and then when you challenge them on some aspects of the biblical basis, they'll say, but this is what the church teaches. And then your response is, yes, but the church is subject to Scripture, not the other way around. And they say, not so. Not so. Scripture is interpreted by the church, and the church can even declare things beyond the Scripture because the vicar of Christ has spoken. And that's what they believe regarding many of these things, especially baptism. Because all of those issues about, first of all, infant baptism, notwithstanding my Presbyterian brothers, and I love them, but I think personally that the Presbyterian doctrine of infant baptism is a holdover from Rome. John Calvin, Martin Luther, they were Catholic men. And I believe that they kept the idea of infant baptism, not believing that it was efficacious, never But believing that it was still important, that it was allowing the infant to be a part of the covenant community, not as a Christian, but as one who was going to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I simply believe that that's a holdover from their days in Roman Catholicism. And that's a doctrine that's just simply been going on and on and on within Presbyterianism or Methodism or Episcopalianism or Anglicanism for all of these years because it's simply a holdover from Rome. It's a very different doctrine than Rome because they don't believe that baptism has efficacious value. That's not what Presbyterians teach. It's a misnomer to say that they do. But... I still believe that even they are found wanting when they try to produce an infant baptism doctrine from Scripture itself. And they try, of course, but I don't believe they're successful. I believe that a baptism properly defined in a New Covenant sense is a baptism by immersion uh, for someone who is already a believer. Rome does not agree with that. Rome says, We believe that baptism is efficacious for an infant And for that saving value, we believe it's absolutely necessary for their salvation. What does Scripture say? Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We'll look at a few passages and we'll see if this is taught. Matthew 28. And I want you to look diligently with me to see whether or not any of these Catholic ideas of baptism are found in any of these passages. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, that is, the disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Stop right there. I believe that what you have there is a command to make disciples. And if you were to study other times that this word mathetes, disciple, is mentioned not only in Matthew's Gospel, but other places, that it is a synonymous term with someone who's a Christian, with someone who's a believer. Now, I know that some in the church, not Roman Catholic people, but some in Protestantism, believe that there's a dichotomy, there's a separation between someone's salvation and their discipleship. That's not taught in the New Testament. When He says here, make disciples, it's the synonymous way of saying, what I want you to do is I want you to evangelize the world. And as you do, people are going to respond to that message and they're going to become followers of Jesus Christ. And when they follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, these nations around the Jews, here's what you ought to do to them. As you're going, you ought to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I believe, properly speaking, the verb there is make disciples, and you do that in three ways. By going, that is by evangelizing, by baptizing, and by teaching them everything that Christ commanded. You see anything in this passage that talks about the baptism of an infant. You see anything in this passage that talks about baptism being of an efficacious nature. No. It's not talking about baptism for salvation. It's not saying that baptism is necessary for salvation. In fact, the verb makes it clear, the making of disciples is the issue, and then when they are disciples, they are to be baptized and taught. It's not true to say that baptism is necessary for salvation. It is on the heels of salvation, but it is not part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Nor is this idea of teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Someone doesn't become a Christian only after... All that Jesus taught and commanded has been taught to them. You see, there's some more in Acts chapter 2. Here's also a reference to baptism. This may sound curiously a little bit like Roman Catholicism. sounds maybe curious to some who might be Church of Christ people who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, he was preaching to the men who had put Christ on the cross, and others, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, that almost looks as though baptism and forgiveness are synonymous, but it isn't. It isn't because the operative word is repent. Repent. In other words, there are times in Scripture where the word repentance is used as a all-inclusive term for the doctrine of salvation. In fact, it was interesting when I was over in the former Soviet Union, when they talked about people coming to Christ, when they talked about people believing in Christ, whatever way you want to describe it, and I know Dr. Zinnick knows this too because he was there, they they would say, here's what it means to be a Christian, I'm a repenter. Isn't that interesting? I'm a repenter. In fact, when I would go to some of their worship services, when there appeared to be a a move of God in massive amounts in those churches, you remember, Dr. Z, they were always jam-packed to the gills with all kinds of people, especially in the cold weather. People would come inside standing room only. They would have three sermons, mind you, three sermons. We're only going to have one tonight. But they had three sermons. And they would preach and preach and preach. And after they would preach the Gospel message, uh, one of the deacons would hold up a microphone and he would say, alright, now, for any of you who want to repent, any of you who want to become a repenter, come forward. And they would just stream people to the front. And people would repent. You know what they would do? They would come behind the microphone and they would begin to recite all of their sins against God. That, that's, that was their testimony. I've sinned in this way, I've sinned in this way, this is what I've done, this is my pattern of life, and I need to repent of all those things. I want to become a repenter. Boy, it's just amazing the the, the freshness of it all. Well, that's sometimes the way the word repent is used in the Bible. It's used as an all-inclusive term. It doesn't mean that faith is not a part of that. And there are also times in the Bible, especially in John's Gospel, when the idea of believing is most prominent, but it doesn't mean repentance wasn't involved. It's like two sides of the same coin. One side of the coin is someone who places their faith in Christ. You turn the coin the other side, and it's someone who has repented of their sins. Both of them are a gift of God. That's the issue of salvation, not baptism. So he says, repent. And when you repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive forgiveness. Not for the baptism, but for the repentance. That's what it means. In fact, we know that's what it means because when you correlate all of the other passages, especially in the book of Acts, you find that when someone would say like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, Brethren, what shall I do to be saved? Baptism was not spoken as the immediate cause for salvation. What was? Believing. Believing in the name of the Lord. If you believe on the name of the Lord, you shall be what? Saved. And Immediately on the heels of that salvation, He went back to His household. He shared the Gospel with them. They repented and believed. And the whole household was baptized. It's always in response to salvation. It is never for the efficaciousness of salvation. Baptism. In fact, this is so explicitly told us in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. Now, this should end all of the arguments regarding the issue of baptism, whether it's an infant baptism, whether it's a baptism that is said to be efficacious or has saving value. I mean, seriously, folks, how could H2O, how could the sprinkling of water on the forehead of someone constitute something that's happening inside a person? Especially an infant who knows nothing of what's going on. An infant that young has utterly no clue what's happening around them. Which obviously means that if that was the beginning point of their salvation, then salvation is divorced from faith. Salvation is divorced from repentance because an infant can't do those things. Here's the way Peter Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 3. He talks about Noah and the days of the ark. Eight persons were brought... Safely through the water, that is, Noah and his family. And then he chooses to use this water analogy. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Aha! There it is. There's possibly the, the very Roman Catholic doctrine. Read on. Baptism now saves you. Dash. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, what he's saying is the analogy of being rescued or delivered out of water is the same idea of what baptism is picturing on the inside. An appeal to a good conscience. An acknowledgement about my sin. An acknowledgment that says that I have sinned against God, I have a wicked conscience, an evil conscience, a guilty conscience, and the only way that I can be saved is not having water remove dirt from my flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is, that I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The propositional statements of the Gospel. That which Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to share with you what I also received, that Jesus Christ died that He was buried according to the Scriptures, and that He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And there were not only Cephas and others, but 500 at one time who were attesting to this, that Jesus Christ has died, He was buried, He was raised again. He was appointed by God in this role. He fulfilled that role. He was ascended to the Father. And now you must repent based upon those things that are true. You must believe in Christ. Baptism is the outworking of that. Every time we give our testimony in the waters of baptism, it's not because we are becoming saved by going down into that water. It's because we already are saved and we're giving a public testimony. Not that the water is delivering me from sin, but Christ has already done that. This is a beautiful picture. That's why Paul says what he says in Romans 6. If infant baptism in the Romish way was true, then it would do an injustice to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are are saved, and that through faith. And that is not from you. It's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. If any man had anything to boast in, a Roman Catholic would boast in this. I have undergone the infant baptism of my early childhood. That at least starts me on the process. I'm in. I hope I'm in. And I know that on the basis of what my church teaches, that's the first step seems to me that there could very well be a lot of boasting in that. In fact, when you talk to a Roman Catholic, when you try to witness to them, when you try to talk to them about Ephesians 2.8.9 and some other passages to that degree, they will say, but this is what my church teaches. They teach me that I must undergo these sacraments and baptism is the first and that's what I've done. They'll immediately appeal to what they've done. And some of them, of course, will say, now I know that even though I've done those things and I've done everything the church has asked me to do, there are also some things that I've done that I know I shouldn't do, but I know that one of the sacraments tells me that I can confess that to my priest and he'll forgive me, and in fact the church forgives me, and by that God forgives me, and I can still be on that right road. That's still what I'm doing, right? There's a lot of eyes in there. Baptism, according to Paul, is excluded because it's a work, and because what he says in Galatians two sixteen, all work is excluded. All work could even be the best of works. Could be giving money. Could be reading your Bible. Could be uh, doing a lot of things that church people do, but it can't be for the purpose of being declared righteous by God. There's no way we could ever do that. That's the first sacrament. Sacrament number two, the sacrament of confirmation. These, of course, don't take as long. Because the issue of baptism is that entry point, they say, into their justification. The next step removed is the sacrament of confirmation. What do they mean by that? Well, again, usually it has to do with children. Usually around 12 or 13 years of age. They believe that it was instituted by Christ when He sent the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts with the laying on of hands. And that's what they believe. They believe that that was a signification, a sign of the confirmation of the presence of God in the life of a person. And so they transfer that over to confirmation and they say, you are confirmed, that is, the presence of God is in your life because the Holy Spirit is spiritually laying His hands on you through this act of confirmation. You are confirmed further along in the process of your justification because you are being confirmed by the laying on of hands by the Holy Spirit. And of course, it is the priest who lays on those hands and by the symbolic transference of the Holy Spirit's hands to the priest's hands and from His hands to you, you are along the process of your justification because you've now been confirmed. They say that believers have bestowed upon them the Holy Spirit, the real presence. An individual person has the real presence of the Holy Spirit. They've been confirmed. Of course, as we know practically speaking, it involves a lot of study. Some of you may have even gone to a parochial school. Normally, the term used to speak of a Catholic school, a religious school. And a lot of you know that there is a tremendous amount of study. There are many Bible verses. That you're asked to know and to at least have in your heart, if not understand them. And through this process, you're asked to respond to these things in your confirmation. And if you do well, they say you're along the path of being accepted by God. But again, it's something that you do. You say, well, where do they again receive that? Well, they say, for instance, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, for example, this is what God is doing. He's confirming those people to whom the Holy Spirit laid His hands through the apostles. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent, from the, uh, sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Then, verse 17, they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. You say, okay, what does that say about the Roman Catholic doctrine of confirmation? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't in the Bible. What they do is they say what this passage means by later teaching, by later revelation, by an ex-cathedra pronouncement of the Pope, that these confirmations are what the Holy Spirit was doing then to tell people that they were baptized in the name of Jesus and they were also receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts uh, to preach, the gifts to teach, the gifts to serve, uh, the gifts to do good works. All of those things are included when the Holy Spirit's hands were laid by the symbolic transference of the hands of the individuals on these people. But of course, just a cursory reading of this shows that this has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with the Catholic Catholic doctrine of confirmation. Certainly not on the basis of a a laying on of hands of a 12-year-old. That's completely far afield. They also appeal to Acts chapter 19. They say the same thing there. They say this is what was intended in these passages. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism which was, of course, a different baptism than Christian baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So the Roman Catholic Church would say, See, this is another example of what we call the sacrament or the ordinance of confirmation. What do we make of that? Well, this is teaching that there is an obvious transition between one baptism and another. Between someone who didn't even know about the ministry and doctrine of the Holy Spirit to a group that did. This is simply talking about the transitionary nature of moving from one covenant to another covenant. Moving from one baptism, the baptism of John, to another baptism, or what we might call Christian baptism, and that is the baptism in the name of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, and in the name of Jesus Christ. What we might call triune baptism. See, they didn't even know about this, but even if that were so, they'd been enlightened by Paul. He says, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God has told us. This is what Jesus is all about in His baptism. They immediately responded to it. They received this baptism. The Holy Spirit came upon them to confirm that this indeed was the right kind of baptism. And it has absolutely nothing to do with confirming a 12-year-old in a ceremony. Rome says it does. We say it does not. Number three, the sacrament of the Mass or the Holy Eucharist. And you might observe, as I do, that this is probably one of the most tragic aspects of Roman Catholic theology. This is what I was referring to in the introduction when I said this is what they spuriously add to the issue of the cross of Christ, to Christianity. You say, what are they adding? Here's what they believe. You know it. You probably know it quite well. Every time they celebrate Mass, and did you know that some... Catholic churches offer Mass every single morning of every day of the week. And there are some people who go to Mass every single morning before they go to work or school or wherever. And here's what they believe is happening. They believe that Jesus Christ is transcendently so and transubstantially so, transubstantiation, simply meaning that that, that wafer and that cup of wine have the actual, literal, physical presence of Jesus Christ in them. And that when you take that wafer and when the priest, and only the priest can do this because of what they believe is the sacred act of doing this, when the priest takes that wafer and he puts it on your tongue, that is you having Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross re-sacrificed to you right at that very moment. When you partake of that chalice or that cup of what they say is the actual, literal, physical blood of Jesus Christ, it's being re-sacrificed on your behalf to you every time you partake of it. That's what Rome believes. They believe that to celebrate this kind of sacrifice is to do a good thing. Here's what they say. Catholic Catechism, page 384. It is by the conversion... That's this transubstantiation idea that the body and blood of Christ comes into the wafer and the cup. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. I think that's a hideous doctrine. It's saying, in in effect... That what Christ did on the cross, His once for all sacrifice there was not enough. It was not enough. What needs to happen in a ceremony, in a signification, in a sacrament, the re-sacrificing of Christ every time you partake of it. As though that once for all sacrifice that Christ gave on our behalf wasn't enough on Calvary. Now there are admittedly passages, for instance, like Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, and First Corinthians 11, where Paul talks in verses 27 and 28 about the Lord's Supper and about the sacrifice of Christ. Yes, it does say in Matthew 26, "This is my body, this is my blood." but what does that mean? And if you were to do any kind of very, very surface study, you would find out that Jesus is not saying that my body, my blood, is literally transubstantiated, transferred into the wafer and into that cup of wine. That's not what He's saying. He's not saying, this is my literal body. How could He be saying that when He was speaking out of His own body right at that moment? How could he be saying that? How could he be saying that this is my body and he was speaking out of a body and yet he was pointing to elements and he was saying that's my body. That's my blood. That doesn't make any sense. He's simply saying... This is the recognition that you ought to observe. This is the memorial. This is what you do when you see these elements in your hand. And a lot of people have asked me the question, why would we do something in a, in a physical way to commemorate the Lord's death when He comes? Well, think about it. I mean, we talk a lot about the spiritual realities of the faith. But when you and I hold that little wafer in our hands and we hold that cup in our hands, when you're physically looking at something, That is a powerful object lesson. When Christ says, do this in remembrance of Me, and they broke bread and they took the cup, it was a powerful remembrance. You're actually seeing something that's not the literal blood of Christ, the literal body of Christ, but you are seeing something that signifies that body and that blood. But the spiritual reality is what Christ did in His body on the cross, never to be repeated. That's so very obvious. I mean, all you have to do is go to the book of Hebrews and there are several places where this is taught. For instance, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. What does it say about the sacrifice of Christ? Is He being re-sacrificed in the Eucharist? By the way, the word Eucharist is just the Greek word for thanksgiving. Now, we're giving thanks in the Mass because of the sacrifice of Christ, they say. But in Hebrews chapter 7, it says... Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did when? And how often? Once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. There's no need to have a re-sacrificing of the cross of Christ made transportedly, transmutedly in the the wafer and the cup. No way. Not on your life. That is is actually messing with the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is a one-time act Never to be repeated again. Hebrews chapter 9 says the same thing. Look at verse 12. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, if you're in Christ, you have obtained eternal redemption. You don't have to continue to celebrate the Mass so that you can be re-saved all over again or to have this re-sacrificing of the cross of Christ over and over and over again. Why? Verse 22, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, He would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. I mean, how clear is this? My Word! A Catholic who is shown Hebrews, will reject it. Why? Because his church doesn't teach it and because he doesn't have spiritual eyes to listen and to hear and perceive. Now you say, is that true of all Roman Catholics? No, it is not. And I want to be the first one to say to you that I believe that some Roman Catholics are true Christians. But while they may be true Christians, they also are bad Christians because they're remaining in the Roman Catholic Church. It might be true, but they ought to leave a system of false religion. You want to be a good Catholic in the ultimate sense, the universal church? Leave a church that teaches a false system of salvation. You want to be a great Christian? Leave it. It's a failed system. Irreformable. Never change. Hebrews chapter 10, same thing. By this will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You say, well, now maybe you're sort of misrepresenting Rome here. Maybe they're really not saying by the Eucharist, by the Mass, that that they're re-sacrificing Christ all over again. That's exactly what they teach. That Christ being placed on your tongue, as bizarre as that sounds, is for you a new sacrifice for your sins. The sins that you committed between the time of the last receiving of the sacrament of the Mass and the now receiving sacrament of the Mass needs to be forgiven. And this is the sacrifice of Christ that forgives you of those sins, or at least as the theory goes. Well, it's just a word they use for confession. They call it the rite of reconciliation, the R-I-T-E of reconciliation and the sacrament of penance. It's given, they say, by the power of Christ to the church, to the very leaders of the church to forgive sins. And you know because you've seen it on television or you as a former Roman Catholic, you go into this confessional box and you sit there and there's a partition, there's a barrier between you and the priest and he opens up a little flap door and there's a little bit of light and there's a little bit of of eyesight through, and of course you hear those very famous words, forgive me, Father, for I have what? Sin. And then you are called upon at least once a year. At least once a year. You're encouraged to do it all the time. But at least once a year, by canon law of the Catholic Church, you must, as a Roman Catholic, go into that confessional box and do penance. That's absolutely required. And you must do it for what they call mortal sins. Mortal meaning the difference between life and death. If you want to continue living and if you want to continue being saved or on the road to salvation, you must confess your mortal sin. You must go into that confessional and because the power of forgiveness is actually granted to the leaders of the church, the priests, then you must go to that priest and he is your go-between between yourself and God. Now does that raise the cackles on the back of your head? It does mine. Because the Bible teaches what? There is one mediator between God and man. Whom? The man Christ Jesus. Absolutely right. There is no intermediary between ourselves and God. The one mediator is Jesus Christ, the God-man, who came to be the once-for-all sacrifice for us so that we don't have to go to some other human being as though they are our link between ourselves and our God. Between our confession of our sins and a right relationship with God. Only Christ. Only Christ. In Mark 2.7, I love this. You remember the man who was lowered down by the pallet? Who was not able to walk? And his friends lowered him down? And he had faith, he had trust, he had belief in Christ. And what did Jesus say? In order to show you that the Son of Man has authority on the earth, I say to you what? Arise! Take up your pallet and walk. And what? Your sins are forgiven. That's the only mediator we need. We don't need a Roman Catholic priest. He has sins of his own he's dealing with. Who does he go to? Another priest? You see, in their system, he he has to go to somebody. Does he go to the Episcopate? Does he go to the Diaconate? Does he go to someone else? I have refreshing news for them. They can go directly to God through the relationship that we have in Christ. 1 John nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't need an intermediary. We have Christ. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. We don't need any human being for which we confess our sins. Now, it is true that James chapter 5 says confess your sins to one another, but you don't confess your sins to one another so as to be forgiven by God. You confess your sins, the sins that you commit against them, so so as to be (coughs) excuse me, forgiven by them. But you also, because you sin against them, you're also sinning against God at the same time. And you don't go to them to have God forgive you of the sins that only He can forgive. You go directly to Him. Yes, there's an opportunity for us to confess our sins to one another. That's true. But it's only the sins that we commit against one another for which we need to come and confess. When those sins are committed against God and every sin that's committed, whether it's against God alone or against someone else, is ultimately a sin against God. That's why David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Psalm 51, five. But, when we sin against God, we go to God. We don't go to a Roman Catholic priest, for sure. Number five, the sacrament of anointing of the sick. You might know it sometimes as extreme unction. What is this? Well, it's the Act of smearing or anointing someone with oil who might be sick or on a deathbed or dying. Sometimes you might have seen in a, a movie of someone who's a Roman Catholic and they're near death and they call for the Roman Catholic priest from the local church, the local place that they have their so-called ministry and they go into the hospital room and they present what is called what? Last rites. Final rites. That is, again, a sprinkling of water and an absolving of your sin. You will often see when movie stars, uh, entertainers, sports celebrities who've lived all their life in Roman Catholicism, you'll hear like uh, Joe DiMaggio or someone like that who's on uh, their deathbed, you'll, you'll hear someone say, and wasn't it so wonderful that just before he died the Roman Catholic priest was able to absolve him of his sins by the giving of last rites. That's heresy. That's a heresy. No man has the ability by God to absolve another man of their sins in their relationship to God. Only God can do that. God is perfect and sinless. Only He can forgive sins ultimately. Only He can absolve people from their sins. And the way to do that is through Christ, not through last rites. Now, in these later years, the anointing of the sick has not always meant only someone on their deathbed, but often that's what it means. And that's a sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church. Listen to what they say. The sacrament of the anointing of the sick has as its effects the forgiveness of sins if the sick person was not able to attain it through the sacrament of penance. In other words, if you're not physically able to go to a confessional box, then you have the Roman Catholic priest come to you and he sprinkles you with oil or he sprinkles you with water and as he does so, he says officially as God's representative on earth, I absolve you of all your sins. Now, we're going to talk a little bit next time about purgatory because there are some in the Roman Catholic system who are such big sinners and they normally know who they are that even those things are not enough. Even those things will land that person in purgatory for which relatives and friends and dead saints and others will then pray them out of purgatory so that they can ultimately be justified in God's sight. What does the Bible teach? Well, James chapter 5, it does say, That the elders are supposed to come to the sick and they're supposed to anoint them with oil. But does it ever say there that they are absolved from their sins? No, it never says that. It says confess your sins to one another in that same context. But it doesn't say that the church is there for the purpose of granting forgiveness as though we are in the very place of God Himself. Only God can do that. You remember again that story out of Mark chapter 2 when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, for that was the first thing He said up in the earlier part of that context of Mark 2, 1-12. And when He said, your sins are forgiven, uh, they scoffed. Why? Because it's fairly easy for anybody, even a human being uh, who's not Christ, to say, look, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's something that's internal, right? You, you can't see whether or not someone's sins are actually forgiven. You can't see in their heart. I could pronounce upon all of you, all of your sins are forgiven. I could absolve you of those things. I could do it right now, or I could do it when you're on your deathbed. I could say all of your sins are forgiven. You know what? Nothing would happen. Nothing. And when they questioned Christ, when they said, you can't do that, Only God can do that. He said, in order to show you that the Son of Man has authority, I say to you, stand up. Is that proof enough? With someone who can't walk, stand up. If you walk right now, that gives evidence that both I can heal the sick and that I can actually forgive sins. Only Christ can do that. Leadership of the church goes and we pray, and we talk, and we pray some more, and we might anoint even with physical oil. And we continue to pray and we lay our hands symbolically saying, Lord, please heal this person. And you know what? Sometimes God in His graciousness does heal them physically from their sickness. And sometimes because they're well physically, they're also dealing at the same time with their spiritual sicknesses, their sins, and they ask God to forgive them and He does. And you know, sometimes God does that and they don't become well physically. And sometimes... We say, Lord, we're praying, we're praying, we're praying, and it appears to us as though nothing happens. Because we're all submitting our wills to the will of Him who loves us and has His will that reigns supreme and perfect. Boy, it is a a sin that is a great sin, a monumental sin, to be called a representative of God Himself and to go around telling people that their sins are actually forgiven. Can you imagine the false assurance that so many Roman Catholic people have at the very moment of their death? You say, false assurance? Yes. I I can't assure anybody that they're on their way to heaven. I don't know that with 100% certainty. There are people who certainly give evidence that they know Christ, and I make assumptions that they know Christ because of the works that I see in their life. But ultimately, only a man who stands before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is an issue internally, and it's an issue between themselves and God alone, that alone gives God the right to say that person is forgiven or not. No human being. And then next to last, the, sac- the sacrament of holy orders. This is real easy and simple. It's the sacrament that says that there, there are men who are bestowed upon by other men sort of an ordination, a laying on of hands to do three things. Either be a deacon in the Catholic Church, be a priest in the Catholic Church, or be an Episcopal or a guy who has charge of a number of Catholic churches, sort of like a bishop, a bishopric. And this is a sacrament, obviously, which some Roman Catholics don't take, but some do, because they say, look if I'm on the process of salvation, and if all of these other sacraments are there for me, I actually want to do extra work. I believe that God would have me do these things because I want to make sure about my own salvation and so I'll go into the priesthood. So many people have chosen that vocation because they believe that ultimately it's going to bring them ever closer to being justified by God. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have said to me, either when I've witnessed two of them or they've been friends of mine, they've come out of Roman Catholicism and they say, you know, I was studying for the priesthood. Or I wanted to go into the priesthood. And often, if I ask the question why, it's often linked to the idea that because I know it's one of the sacraments of the church and I believe that it was going to draw me closer to God so that He would accept me. That's a a frightening thing, isn't it? I mean, the Bible does talk about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 the leadership of elders, uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 6, the laying on of hands of the presbytery. But it's a symbolic gesture. Every time we lay hands on a, on a person, every time we ordain a man, we are making an assumption that that's what God is doing in calling him into the ministry. We don't know that for sure. Only God knows that. And it has no efficacy. It has no saving value. No one in Protestantism, rightly so called, is going to go into the ministry because he thinks it's going to keep him on the path of salvation. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. And then lastly, the sacrament of marriage. This wasn't really a known sacrament until 1215 in the Fourth Lateran Council. And what they said was probably a reference to the passage in 1 Peter 3 that says marriage is a grace of life. They would take that grace as an efficacious grace and say, well, then marriage has that special anointing, that special grace, that special conference of mercy and salvation for those who marry. In other words, they encourage marriage in the Roman Catholic Church. You say, well, what happens with someone who does marry, assuming that this grace is going to be conferred on them, and then they want a divorce? Well, the Roman Catholic Church has come up with a doctrine called annulment, haven't they? And uh, in the media recently, some years ago, Ted Kennedy, who's obviously a very famous Roman Catholic, desperately wanted out of his marriage. And he was having an adulterous relationship with another person who was not a Roman Catholic and a person who wanted to marry him. And so he went to the church and said, Now look, I know, and of course I don't know that this is exactly what he says. I'm paraphrasing what no doubt was the conversation. Look, I know that I've been married to this other person for 30 plus years. I know that but I want an annulment. And you know what an annulment is? It means by the Catholic Church's own verification that the marriage never existed. That is preposterous. Someone who would say that they've been married to a person for 30 plus years and then they want somebody else and then they go to their church because they know that to deny this sacrament of marriage is to bring judgment upon themselves and then say, I want you to declare that my earlier marriage never existed. Come on. The Bible talks about the sacredness of marriage, but it has no efficacious value. You aren't saved by becoming married. Can you see how all of these steps in the Roman Catholic system leads them to believe that if they are to do all these things, God accepts them as just? And they have to come up with all of these reasons and wherefores and whyfores in case some of these things don't happen like an annulment. It is taboo in the Roman Catholic Church to be divorced. It is taboo in the Roman Catholic Church to use birth control. It is taboo in the Roman Catholic Church to have any form of reproductive technology save just a few things. Why? Because it's all built up in a system of salvation that says if you're on this road and you complete these seven steps, then you're a lot closer than somebody else. You say, does a Roman Catholic, as we close, ever have really a true assurance of their salvation? Most of the time, not. If you ask any Roman Catholic who's sort of the run-of-the-mill Roman Catholic, do you believe that you're a Christian? Do you believe you're on your way to heaven? Do you have an assurance of your salvation? Most of them would say, no, I, I, I hope it comes. I, I hope it happens. I'm working hard. Do you understand that even things like the right to life, which is at least in its origins, a Roman Catholic-started kind of ministry to reach out to the abortion issue, that those people who are banding together with Protestants in a right-to-life cause are doing so because they believe that's part and parcel of good works that may ultimately land them in the place of being declared just by God. True. Every Catholic work, everything they're doing is for the purpose of ultimately, hopefully, God saying, you're in. What a, what a failed system. What a way to live. It's like someone who denies eternal security. What a way to live. That you deny that you're eternally secure. You believe one day you can be saved and one day you're lost. To be one day believing that maybe I'm doing these good works and maybe I'm in, maybe I'm closer to that time of my progressive justification being conferred on me and maybe not. Maybe I'm going to have to spend a hundred years or so in purgatory, maybe more. It's incredible. Say, what's the conclusion to all this? There's a wonderful book called Far From Rome, Near to God. And it's the testimony of 50 converted Roman Catholic priests. It's just a marvelous book. You ought to read it. Published by the Banner of Truth. It's wonderful. The first one is Henry Gregory Adams. Here's his testimony. I was born of Roman Catholic parents in Wolseley, Saskatchewan, Canada and brought up strictly in the Roman Catholic faith. From early youth, I was trying to be good, yet falling progressively into sin. When the rest of the crowd I was heading, with the rest of the crowd, I was heading to perdition. I was told that by becoming a monk and priest, I could avoid sin and be more certain of my salvation. Does it have a ring of what I was saying? Because I was sincerely seeking salvation, I entered the Basilian order of monks, received the long black robe and an adopted monastic name of Saint Hilarion the Great, and made my vows. As a monk student, I was called Brother Hilarion, and after ordination, Father Hilarion. How eager I was to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. By leading a monastic life, I thought I was doing just that. I performed all my monastic duties to the last rule. I whipped myself every Wednesday and Friday evening till at times my back bled. In penance, I often kissed the floor. Often I ate my meager meal kneeling down on the floor or completely deprived myself of food. I did many forms of penance for I was truly seeking salvation. I was taught that I would eventually merit heaven. I did not know what the Word of God says for by grace you are saved, in quotes, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. After years of studies and manual labor in the monastery, I was ordained a priest. I served five parishes in the Lamont, Alberta area said mass every day, heard confession, recited the rosary to Mary, had devotions to many saints, recited the the breviary of formula prayers every day, and as a monk, performed my penances more fervently than ever. Yet these did not satisfy my weary soul. Sounds like Martin Luther, isn't it? I was heading into even deeper distress of soul than when I was a boy, but Christ was faithful in His care for me. Among the studies for the priesthood, we had three textbooks on the Bible, but not the Bible. After I was ordained a priest, I became acquainted with the Roman Catholic version of the Bible, and and that's an amazing statement, and in it were striking verses that contradicted my very beliefs and practices, like those verses in Hebrews. God's book said one thing, my church another. Who was right, the Roman church or God? I eventually believed God's Word. The monastic life and the sacraments prescribed by the Roman Catholic Church did not help me to come to know Christ personally and find salvation. After twelve and a half long years, I escaped from the monastery, a lost sinner without peace in my soul. In me there was still only the nature of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. I needed a new nature, a new heart. Scripture tells me, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4. That can only be brought about by being born again of the Spirit of God by faith alone in Jesus Christ and not by monotonous repetition of prayers, penances, sacrifices, and good works. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. I realize that the man-made sacraments of my church and my good works were in vain for salvation. They led to a false security. Soon afterwards, I believed that Christ died for me because I could not save my soul and I trusted Him alone for my salvation. When I repented of my sins and received Him into my heart, believing that on the cross He paid the complete penalty for my condemnation, I knew that my sins were not only forgiven but forgotten and that I was justified before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The blood of Christ cleansed me from all my sins and now I have God's peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends with my word to you. Friend, if you too are trying to reach heaven on your own, may I impress upon you that it is not of works lest any man should boast. Heaven can never be earned. Christ alone is the way and the answer. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be justified, testified in due time. Come to Him now just as you are admitting your sins. Ask His pardon and receive Him as your own Savior and Lord. Begin to rely on Him for your eternal welfare for He bought salvation for you. He calls you now. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then you too can rejoice with Me and your newfound Savior, the living Christ. Isn't that such a wonderful testimony? Being delivered from the bondage, the true bondage of sin, and that, within Christendom itself. The Roman Catholic Church. More to come. Mary, purgatory, and other things. Let's pray together. Father, we have every opportunity. There are so many people around us who are Roman Catholics. Some of them may even be truly believers, and yet we need to exhort them That the system that they live under, work under, minister under is a failed system. That they need to abandon that system. That they need to embrace the true church. All of those who by faith alone and Christ alone are true and genuine in the faith. And for those who are not truly believers in Rome, suffering, agonizing, beating their backs like... This man, Mr. Adams, doing what they can through penance and all of these things, Lord, it doesn't merit them one inch closer to being declared righteous by You. Because it nullifies the grace of God in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.